Please turn with me in your copy of the Holy Scriptures to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 63 this morning. Isaiah 63. I'll begin this morning with a quote from G. Campbell Morgan, who was the pastor of the renowned Westminster Chapel in London, England, for many years during the 20th century. He said this, He said, the supreme need in every hour of difficulty and distress is for a fresh vision of God. Seeing him, all else takes on proper perspective and proportion. And folks, unless you've been living under a rock over the last couple years, you have experienced some degree of, of distress and difficulty in your life our personal experience in life and the current events in our world have threatened to discourage us and disillusion us. And we need a fresh vision of God to regain a proper perspective and proportion to those experiences and events. That's in fact what the prophet Isaiah needed in Isaiah chapter six when Judah's good king, King Uzziah died, leaving the people in distress. The Bible tells us that it was in the year that King Uzziah died that Isaiah saw a vision of the throne room of God. God was high and lifted up and from that fresh vision of God, Isaiah experienced a revival in his life and surrendered to serve the Lord saying, here am I, send me. This morning now from Isaiah 63, we can gain a a fresh vision of God when we too can experience a, a spirit of revival in our own hearts toward God. And so from Isaiah 63, I prepared a message simply titled, The Means of Revival, Be Thou My Vision. Let's pause for prayer. God in heaven above, we ask that you would show us your glory your character, your attributes. God, I pray that through the prophet Isaiah and the pages of scripture that we we would see your holiness, that we would recognize in a fresh way who you are, even your wrath and judgment, as well as your long suffering and your mercy and your grace and your love. God, we are all to some degree in a season of distress and God, we need to see you. I pray that you would help us toward that end, for I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. We know that Isaiah's prophetic ministry in Judah spanned the reign of four different kings, King Uzziah, King Jotham, King Ahaz, and King Hezekiah, according to chapter one, verse number one. It was a little more than 100 years before the Babylonian captivity. Isaiah's message was one of both pending judgment and of future redemption for God's people. And we've come now to Isaiah 63, and he frames his message in this way. Number one in your notes, if you're following the outline I've prepared, looking forward. This is where we're going to see God looking forward, the vengeance of God against his enemies in verses one through six. The vengeance of God against his enemies. Now, if you'll put yourself on the city wall, the city of Jerusalem, perhaps, on the the city wall as a watchman, and you are looking forward, you are looking toward the horizon, and you see someone coming toward you, but you can't quite identify who it is. And so you ask the logical question, who is it that is coming? Look at verse number one, Isaiah 63, verse number one. Who is this who comes from Edom? 
with dyed garments from Basra, the one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Someone is coming from Edom. Edom is a nation to the southeast of Judah. More specifically, this someone is coming from Basra, the capital city of Edom to the southeast of Judah. Edom was the the home of the Edomites who were the descendants of Jacob's twin brother Esau and like the sibling rivalry between Jacob and Esau, the Israelites and the Edomites were always at war. Consequently, in the scripture, the nation of Eden, Edom is always represented as those who are against God and contrary to the people of God. Basra, the capital city of Edom, means grape gathering. And you need to remember that in a moment as we go back and, and talk about the wine press in, in just a moment. But there is one who is coming from the capital city, Basra, of Edom, and he's coming from that place of Israel's enemy. He's coming dressed in fancy garments and traveling in the greatness of his strength. This one is not coming in defeat. This one is coming in victory as a conquering king. And so the watchman on the wall asks, who is he who is coming? The last phrase of verse number one identifies him. It is I who speak in righteousness mighty to save. Any ideas? This is the Lord. So standing on the city wall as a watchman, looking toward the horizon, you see, you you recognize something peculiar about this one who is coming, approaching the city, and you ask a second question. Your question is, why is his clothing red? Look at verse number two. Why is your apparel red? And your garments like one who treads in the wine press. Now, wine presses were places where grapes were collected at harvest time to be pressed for their, their juice. And you can picture a large vat or a large basin that is cut into the, to the bedrock or the stone. The wine press is then filled with grapes and then the workers march around stomping on the grapes with their bare feet to press the juice that would be drained at a low point in that bedrock or that stone, that wine press and collected. Of course, as the grapes were trampled, you can imagine that the juice from those grapes would splatter onto the clothing of those who were treading the grapes. And that's the answer and the explanation in verse number three. Verse number three, I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me, for I've trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments and I have stained all my robes. But here, while the red stain looked like the grapes from the proverbial wine presses in the enemy city of Basra, Edom, it was in fact the blood of God's enemies. And so the imagery here of treading the wine press of the wrath of God is a picture of divine judgment in the scriptures. It always is. In in fact, 11 Old Testament prophets speak of God's judgment in this very way, most often pointing to the final judgment of God at the end of the age. For example, when you get to the book of Revelation, we find this very same imagery. I've got it for you there on the screen. One like the son of man having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And an angel cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle saying thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe reap the grape harvest so the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath 
of God. Revelation 14 also. Revelation 19. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. This is speaking of of Jesus Christ and his return. And his name is called the word of God. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. And with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. Now, there is a difference between the garments that are stained with blood in, in, in Isaiah 63 and those that are stained with blood in Revelation 19. Here in Revelation 19, uh, the, the robe is covered with Jesus' own blood, the blood that he shed on the cross. Back in Isaiah 63, the garment is covered in the blood of Israel's enemies or God's enemies, but in both cases, it is the judgment of God that is likened to the treading of grapes in the wine press. This is the wrath of God. And we don't always like to portray the Lord as a God of wrath and vengeance, but in gaining a fresh vision of God, we must include this picture. It's a horrific picture, to be sure. It causes us to rightly fear God. But the good news is this isn't the whole picture of God. Look at verse number four. For the day of vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeemed has come. Notice two things here in verse four. First, notice that judgment and redemption are paired together in verse number four. It's, it's in fact quite common in the scripture. For example, at the same time when God's judgment fell upon the Egyptians who drowned in the Red Sea, God's redemption delivered Israel through the Red Sea. Also notice in verse four the the duration of God's judgment and redemption. Judgment is framed as a day. Redemption is is described as a year. And, And that's not a literal designation but a comparative indication of the difference between the two. The Lord continues speaking in verse number five. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me. My own fury, it sustained me. I've trodden down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my fury and brought down their strength to the earth. And once again, we we don't like to, to think of God as a God of wrath or judgment or fury, but yet we at the same time find this strangely familiar to us. Why are these early verses in Isaiah 63 familiar to us? Because they are part of the cultural conscience in our country found in the battle hymn of the Republic. Now the battle hymn of the Republic was written in 1861 during the Civil War and it references, it poorly references God's judgment upon the wicked at the end of time and it applies, it poorly applies it to the mission of the Union soldiers to free the slaves. So, so you listen as I read the lyrics of the Battle Hymn of, Repu- of the Republic. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Can we say Isaiah 63, verse number one, who is this who is coming from Basra, Edom with red garments? He is trampling out the vintage, is how we sing it. The original words is he is trampling out the wine press where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. That's borrowing from Revelation 19, verse 15. His truth is marching on. 
He has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift my soul to answer him. Be jubilant my feet. Our God is marching on. And, and we know this hymn and we love this hymn for it's used at military funerals and it's used at patriotic events. But, but this is what we need to see. In looking forward, we see the pending vengeance of God upon the wicked of the world. The day of the Lord's vengeance is a frightful picture to behold. As we seek, as we seek a fresh vision of God, we need to see God in this way. However, if we look back, we see a different picture of God, and this is number two, looking backward now. Looking backward, we see the mercy of God toward his people, the mercy of God toward his people. And in the face of present trouble, in the face of future judgment, Isaiah reclaims a fresh vision of God by looking back and rehearsing God's mercy and grace to his people. Look at verse number seven. Verse seven, I will, it's a 180 degree turn. Verse seven, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindness. I don't know if you're one to mark your Bible, but if you are one to mark your Bible, circle or underscore the descriptors of God in verse number seven. There's loving kindness. Do you see it there in verse seven? It's the Hebrew has said. It's found 250 times in the Old Testament and it speaks of God's love and his mercy and his compassion and his grace and his faithfulness. In verse seven there, there's the praises of the Lord, the great goodness of the Lord. There's the mercies or the compassion of the Lord and then again, his loving kindness, his kased. Jump to the end of verse number eight and he became their savior. You need to highlight that. Underscore or circle that. In, in fact, it's at the end of verse one, it's in verse five, and then at the end of verse, or then in verse eight, there's, there's a theme of God's salvation. And looking backward, we can see the mercy of God toward his, his people. How so? How did God become Israel's merciful savior in the past? Well, God delivered his people Israel from slavery in Egypt and brought them to the promised land. Verse number nine, verse nine, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. God is not indifferent to our circumstances. And if you are suffering, if you are hurting this morning, you know that God is as well is afflicted in your circumstance. Verse nine says the angel of his presence saved them. Who is the angel of his presence? Well, he is the one called the angel of the Lord so often in the Old Testament scriptures. It is the pre-incarnate son of God. We call it a Christophany. Verse nine continues, in his love and in his pity, he redeemed them and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. And folks, as you read through the pages of the Old Testament scripture, you must see the love of God toward his people Israel. As you read through the pages of the New Testament, you must see the love of God toward us. As I cited a moment ago, Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. Can you see, can you look back and see in a fresh way the character 
of God. In, in light of this view of God, one, would, one would, would, would love the Lord and obey the Lord and serve the Lord and follow the Lord for all that he has done for them, for us. But look at verse 10. Verse 10, they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Are you kidding me, Israel? Are you kidding me, New Testament Christian? How do you rebel and grieve the one who's merciful and gracious and compassionate and loving? We understand the rebellion of children. When our children disrespect us and disobey us and and turn away from the right that we've taught them, we grieve. And I might just say, by the way, you can be the perfect parents and have rebellious children. You can do everything right and have rebellious children. You can love and give and serve and sacrifice and teach your children and still have rebellious children. How do I know that? Because God is the perfect father and he has rebellious children. And here in this case, in spite of verse number seven and in spite of the end of verse number eight, in spite of his, his sympathies toward them in verse nine and he saved them in his love and pity, he redeemed them in verse nine and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. Verse 10, they rebelled. We're all familiar with the prodigal, the, the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15 and I think it could be better called the parable of the prodigal's son's father. For in fact, the parable is about the love of the father more than it's about the rebellion of the son. There are three parables in Luke 15. The first is the lost coin. The second is the lost sheep. The third is the lost son. We call it the parable of the prodigal son. But in each case, the point of those parables is praise for the one who searches for what is lost and celebrates when it is found. The lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. But look what happens when when God's children rebel They rebel against him. They reject his love toward them. Verse 10, the the second part of verse 10. So he turned himself against them as an enemy and fought against them. Now, don't misunderstand this. This is not God changing from a good God to a bad God, God, but rather he is being consistent in dealing with his people uh, according to their response to them. For, for example, if you read Leviticus 26, God tells Israel, if you obey, I will bless you. If you disobey, then I will set my face against you and, and you will be defeated by your enemies. Leviticus 26, verse 17. And, and so there's a timeless principle here. We cannot ask for and expect God's blessing if we are rejecting him and his word and grieving his spirits. But rather, we need a fresh view of God. We need to look back and we need to see his loving kindness toward us in redeeming us, knowing that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in in Christ Jesus. Verse 11, then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people. This is good. He needs to look backward and remember Moses and his people saying, where is he who brought them out of the sea with shepherd 
with the shepherd of his flocks? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them? And, and he's speaking of Israel remembering and, and asking, where is God? Verse 12, who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the waters before them to make himself an everlasting name, who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble. And in looking back to the good old days when God delivered Israel from Egypt through the Red Sea and set them free like a horse to roam in the wilderness. Israel is asking, where is the one who accomplished those good things in our lives in the past? Verse 14, as the beast goes down into the valley and the spirit of the Lord causes him to rest. Folks, rest was the goal. After 400 years of slavery in Egypt, taking them to the promised land, the land of rest, so you led your people to make yourself a glorious name God was merciful to Israel, not just for Israel's sake, but for his own namesake, his own glory. And now they're facing difficulty and distress in Isaiah's day. Where do they look for a fresh view of God? Looking forward, it's the vengeance of God against his enemies. Looking back, it's the mercy of God toward his people. Number three, of course, you look upward. You look upward, the prayer of God in his heaven. In verse 15, Isaiah asks God to look down from heaven. Look down from heaven and see from your habitation, holy and glorious, where are your zeal and your strength, the yearning of your heart and your mercies toward me. And I title this looking upward because from the perspective of the speaker, Here, Isaiah and Israel, from us as the readers, looking upward in prayer to God in heaven above. You perhaps have heard me, I often begin my prayers by saying something like this. I I address God in heaven above. And of course, we get that from how Jesus taught his disciples to pray, our Father who art in heaven we are addressing God in heaven above and Isaiah is looking up to the holy and glorious place of God's habitation. In verse 15, the, the, the NIV translates it your, whole, your lofty throne, I think, if you have the NIV. Isaiah is longing for the presence and the power of God to be poured out on him and on Israel. Look at verse 15. Look down from heaven and see from your habitation holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your strength, the yearning of your heart, your mercies toward me? Are they restrained? And this is, letter A, a prayer of petition. A prayer of petition. Have you ever, have you ever prayed in this way and just pled with God saying, God, I need you now. I need your mercy and grace now. God, please don't neglect me now. God, please come down, look down, come down, help me now. And this is the beginning of revival in our hearts when we are distressed in such a way that there's only one place to look and that's upward in prayer of petition to God. I think that's what's happening there in verse 15. And then there's a prayer of confession and contrition, I'll give it to you, prayer of contrition in verses 16 and 17. Doubtless you are our father, though Abraham was ignorant of us and Israel does not acknowledge us. Our our patriarchal forefathers, they they never would know of us or recognize us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from everlasting is your name. And, And Israel is acknowledging if the patriarchs could see us now, they would not recognize us 
because we've strayed so far from the Lord. Verse 17, O Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear? Return for your servant's sake the tribes of your inheritance. And don't misunderstand that Isaiah is not blaming God for Israel's sin, but he's acknowledging that God's discipline is at work in a way that that man responds in, in hardness. And when we sin, God disciplines us in some fashion. It's It's not uncommon for us to resent that discipline or that chastisement. But Proverbs 3 says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction for whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. You need a fresh vision of God. He is your loving father who disciplines you or chastens you out of love. The author of Hebrews spoke of this in Hebrews 12, verses 6 through 11. But But what happens in our pride is that we harden ourselves, we refuse to hear him, and so God resists the proud, and our sin separates us from our God. Verses 18 and 19, I'm nearly done. Your holy people have possessed it, that's the the inheritance for a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. We have become like those of old over whom you never ruled, those who were never called by your name. What is he saying? He's saying we're no different than the other peoples of the world because we don't have your favor. And folks, this is difficulty and distress at its worst. When we see God in a fresh way, his righteous wrath and his loving kindness, you understand both views of God, his vengeance and his loving kindness We look up to God in heaven above and we plead with him. I'll give you a teaser from next week, Isaiah 64, verse number one. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down. If I had another subpoint, letter C, I I would title it prayer of invitation. Prayer of petition, prayer of contrition, prayer of invitation. God, please, Come down. Meet with us in a special way. Be present among us in a real way because of our difficulty and distress. There at the top of your notes again, what G. Campbell Morgan, the supreme need in every hour of difficulty and distress is for a fresh vision of God. Folks, we're well aware of the difficulty and distress that we're going through individually and collectively. Seeing him and only seeing him will give us proper perspective and proportion. And I think stir revival in our hearts as we pray to God in heaven, please come. Let's pray. Lord, God in heaven above, our Father who art in heaven. We bow our heads and we lift our voices to you and we ask, God, that you would revive our hearts. We pray, God, that you would give us a clear picture of who you are, that we in humility and brokenness and contrition, petition, invitation might welcome you into our lives so that we might obey you and not be rebellious children. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters 
that are before me in this room, those that are listening or watching this service. God, that you would accomplish this work in us all. For I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.